More than two dozen states have sued Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin, for the harm the company has said to have inflicted by helping to drive the current opioid crisis, in part through the manipulation of prescribing practices. Pharmaceutical marketing has had an important role in physician education since the invention and promotion of broad-spectrum antibiotics in the 1950s, a revolution that also involved the Sacklers, the family that controls Purdue. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Scott Podolsky, a professor of global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Podolsky has co-authored a perspective article on the history of pharmaceutical marketing and the Sackler legacy. Dr. Podolsky, before the advent of broad-spectrum antibiotics, how did doctors learn about new drugs and how efficacious they might be? Well, pharmaceutical marketing had always been present to some degree, from at least from the turn of the 20th century. The issue is that there was a real change both in the scope of pharmaceuticals themselves and in the style and scope of pharmaceutical marketing after World War II. So before World War II, as far as the effective major drugs, you certainly had insulin in the 1920s, you had the sulfur drugs in the 1930s, but then with pharmaceutical collaboration on penicillin during World War II, you had this increased investment within pharmaceuticals themselves, and you saw this post-World War II explosion, as it were, of new classes of pharmaceuticals from with antibiotics as the leading edge, followed by antipsychotics, or deemed minor tranquilizers, steroids, antihypertensives. And you had had this concomitant transformation in pharmaceutical marketing per se. And there was a sense that it was harder for doctors to actually keep up with all of these new drugs. So perhaps prior to World War II, you'd still learn from advertisements. You'd still hopefully learn from actual medical sources like medical journals and one's actual medical education. But all this has seemed more complicated after World War II when you just had this advent of so many new drugs. So in your article, you described this revolution in marketing that was led by Pfizer during the 50s. What kinds of sources did you use to reconstruct that story? Really fun to do. And so certainly looking at the contemporary literature at the time, you had magazines like Fortune and Forbes writing articles about what they saw in real time as this revolution in pharmaceutical marketing. There are certainly secondary sources Thomas Mahoney wrote a book in 1962 called Merchants of Life describing this transformation. For the antibiotics per se, though, though, in the 1950s, the Federal Trade Commission was already concerned that antibiotic pricing seemed, A, pretty similar among the various companies, and they were worried about some degree of collusion. And they were certainly worried about the pricing per se, so they did a whole report, an economic report on antibiotic manufacture. And that was published in 1958 and was quite rich in its own right. But what that also led was to actual sources at the National Archives, because it's very hard for historians to actually go behind the scenes to look at pharmaceutical companies. There are very few pharmaceutical company archives that are available to historians like myself. So in the 1950s, the FTC not only conducted this report, but actually pursued a suit against leading pharmaceutical companies around what they deemed price fixing among the tetracyclines. And when they do that, all those records then become discoverable and are open to researchers, and they're left at the FTC archives down in at the National Archives. Robert Budd is a wonderful historian, really the biography of penicillin, and he and I had dinner one day, he said, you know, you should look at these records of the National Archives on the FTC, and I went down there, and it was amazing. There were about 80 boxes of material. The first 70 boxes had almost nothing in them, and then it was 10 full boxes of all the drug detailing reports from the early 1950s in what were deemed to be these blood-spectrum antibiotic detailing wars. And you had these companies like Pfizer, like Leaderly, which becomes part of American Cyanamid, like Squibb, who were all quote-unquote detailing physicians and conducting these campaigns as they try to quote-unquote educate physicians, conducting these campaigns like military campaigns and describe them in these archives in the language of combat. So 
What exactly did these companies do that previous pharmaceutical manufacturers hadn't done? What changed in the 50s? So several things changed. And the antibiotic story is telling because you had something like penicillin, which was not patented, was not really branded per se. And so the profit margin was not great. And then it, that was followed by streptomycin, which had similar constraints. And so the companies like Pfizer, like Leaderly, knew that the real important step was to discover your own new drug, patent it, and brand it. And so the, the techniques were, number one, dramatically increasing their drug detailing force. So Pfizer, as of 1950, had eight drug detail men. And of course, by 1957, it had 2,000, including in 1951, it had 70 medical students doing this. It was enormous journal advertising and very flashy, colorful journal advertising. So in that FTC comic report, they described being a JAMA in the 1940s, where it was very modest what was in there. There's a dramatic quantitative increase in antibiotic advertising within JAMA. It became increasingly, I mean, these are beautiful images. And then somebody like Pfizer actually had its own house journal organ called Spectrum, which was really basically broad spectrum advertising inserted in every single issue of JAMA between June of 1952 in 1956. So there was drug detailing, journal advertising, uh, carloads of mailings to physicians at their homes, at their offices, all, all proclaiming the utility of particular drugs. So you write in your article that the decision to allow marketers such wide scope to shape the circulation of potent and potentially dangerous drugs wasn't inevitable. So what were the other regulatory options at the time, and why didn't we end up with stricter rules? The FDA has often, in this era, in the early 1950s, was even before the FDA was explicitly adjudicating drug efficacy. That doesn't really happen until 1962. At this point, it was mostly, at least overtly, adjudicating drug safety, although efficacy is always implicit in those determinations. It was really mostly about drugs getting on the marketplace. It was not about regulating physician prescribing per se. And did, as long as off-label prescribing wasn't, wasn't being promoted, they offered a wide latitude on the style of marketing that was allowed. And this was certainly alarming to this growing cadre of therapeutic reformers throughout the mid-1950s. So people like Max Finland here at Harvard, people like Harry Dowling, who was his colleague, were concerned that this was going to be an era of style over substance. So Harry Dowling in 1957 gives a talk called, quote-unquote, the twixt the cup and the whip for the AMA, the cup being the crucible, which meant antibiotic drugs were being manufactured, the whip being the mouth of the patient. And he basically says, look, we are no different, we're coming no different than automobile manufacturers with their advertising and their plan obsolescence, or even cigarette companies or whiskey companies. And that if we're not careful, the pharmaceutical industry and the medical profession are both going to go down together. There were other models, right? So the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which at that time was regulating prescription opioids and did take a stricter stance on what was going to be allowed in marketing and even could do some degree of counter-marketing against what it deemed extravagant claims. You talk in your article a bit about the current legal action against Purdue Pharma for its role in the opioid crisis. Do you think that the outcome of those cases or the amount of attention they've received is going to lead to any changes in the way pharmaceutical companies market their products? It's a good question. I don't think so, meaning I think the current legal action against Purdue Pharma has been framed as fairly outrageous activity with overt deceit to clinicians per se. I don't know that it will impact the fundamental structuring of how new drugs not only in the marketplace, but then how doctors learn about those drugs. And we really have permitted this, this enormous industry, as it were, and certainly structure of quote-unquote educating physicians through pharmaceutical company advertising, marketing, and quote-unquote education. It would take a radical restructuring in this country about how physicians learn about new drugs. So finally, what would that kind of restructuring look like? What would an improved model of 
education about medical innovation look like? There are components of models. I mean, certainly in Britain, you have the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, where you have a agency that can not only evaluate drugs, but can have some authority regarding how drugs will be reimbursed. There's $20 billion going into medical marketing to physicians. There's a lot of money out there that could be used to evaluate drugs and then educate physicians about those drugs with seemingly with no clinical conflict of interest between, on the one hand, public health need, and on the other hand, commercial interest. Thank you, Dr. Podolsky.